Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Philemon. You can see we're going to go through a few different passages today, but we're going to start off in the book of Philemon. Uh, when Pastor Daniel asked me to teach this morning, I asked him what he wanted me to talk about. And he said, talk about something related to youth. Uh, what are you guys learning? What are you guys talking about doing? Uh, so we just had winter camp two weeks ago with the topic of forgiveness. And that seemed very apropos to talk about this morning as well. So that is what we are going to be discussing. If you would stand uh, with me, and we are going to read Philemon here, chapter 1. There really is no need for a chapter. It's the only chapter. So chapter 1, verses 10 through 16, the book of Philemon. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord." For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is rich in mercy in your steadfast love, your loving kindness, who is slow to anger and abounding in great loving kindness toward us. Lord, that we would be delighted by you as we see these truths from your word today, that you would reveal yourself to us and delight our hearts and move us to to live in a manner that represents you, our awesome God, well. We thank you so much for our Savior, Jesus, and we pray all this in his name. Amen. You may be seated. Corrie ten Boom uh, was a Dutch woman who lived there during the Nazi occupation of her country and during World War II. Uh, she wrote a book called The Hiding Place. In it, she tells uh, a story of, of her life. Uh, her family was actually arrested. They were housing Jews, trying to care for them. They got caught. They were arrested and taken away and taken to a concentration camp and then moved to a few different concentration camps. During their time there, she and her father and her sister Betsy, they were naked, forced to march in the cold. They were starved. Many were killed in gas chambers. Actually, Corey's life is sort of a miracle that God worked out for her to, to accidentally be released when the whole rest of her group would have been killed two weeks later in a gas chamber. During that time, both her sister Betsy and her father died under the Nazi-controlled camps. Yet after this, after the war was over, after she was freed, she went back to Germany to share about Christ and the good news of his forgiveness. This is, a, this is a quote from one of her times there as she stood in this public forum speaking to the German people. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next 
the blue uniform, and a cap with skull and crossbones. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Betsy, how thin you were. The place was Ravensbrook, and the man who was making his way forward had been a guard, one of the most cruel guards. Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And I, who had spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take that hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him. I was face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fraulein. Again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had again and again been forgiven, could not forgive. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had ever had to do. Forgiveness is a word very easily said, but not very easily done, and oftentimes rarely used. This morning we want to talk about that. We're going to talk about three questions about forgiveness or the opposite side of that, three very important passages that offer us answers for forgiveness. We'll start with our first question. How important is forgiveness? And for that, we'll stay in Philemon here. Paul is imprisoned in Rome. He's been preaching the gospel faithfully. He goes to Jerusalem. He's captured, taken through a series of events that God sovereignly works out to get him in Rome. He's in Rome in prison. But prior to that, he's done missionary work, especially in the the city of Ephesus, where he most likely met the man Philemon. Philemon was a rather wealthy man, and he was saved under Paul's teaching, lives in Colossae, a city very close to that, and was part of big part of the church there. Paul writes this letter to him on behalf of another man, Onesimus. We don't know exactly what Onesimus did, but Onesimus sinned grievously against Philemon. He hurt him in some way, and then, as his slave, fled of all places to Rome which led to him coming to Paul, which led to him coming to Christ. This man, sovereignly ordained by God to flee right into his arms. And Paul took this man in, raised him, taught him in the faith, and Onesimus became very useful, worthwhile to him, beneficial to him, helpful in his ministry. That's why Paul says, look at verse 10. 
I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, who I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. Why is Paul willing to give up this one who is so beneficial to him? This one who is his heart, he loves dearly. This one who is beneficial to Paul, who is caring for Paul. Paul is in prison. He can't go out and do anything, but he can send Onesimus to go th- do things, to get things for him, bring them back. He needs him. And not only that, Paul is an apostle. He has an apostolic ministry. The guy who wrote a majority of our New Testament. He willfully gives up Onesimus, hindering his very gospel ministry even, for this. Why? Why would he do that? I think the answer is found in verses 15 and 16. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Why does Paul send Onesimus back? It's because Paul knows that forgiveness and restoration is of vital importance. It is important for Onesimus, it is important for Philemon, and it's important for their church. So much so that Paul gives up all these things that are beneficial to him to let and encourage Onesimus to go back to Philemon and seek forgiveness. And why he encourages Philemon to give it. Sin causes wedges in relationship. Sin creates barriers in relationship. Think all the way back to Genesis 3. Man walking with God in the cool of day. And then all of a sudden, he hides himself from the presence of the Lord. He was naked and ashamed He is separated. His sin separates him from his God. Sin separates. Sin breaks. And not only does it separate him from his God, but the very next thing that happens, God asks him a question, and he goes and he says, The woman! He blames his wife. Sin breaks our human relationships. Brokenness enters the world with sin. And outside of forgiveness, there is no hope of restoration. Forgiveness is necessary for our relationship with God. If you are unsafe, if you've never started a relationship with Him, you need forgiveness. Your sin keeps you at bay from a holy God. You are unworthy and unable to come to Him on your own. You stand against Him. Sin is a barrier unsurmisable by you before your God. What about the saved? I had someone ask me this recently. Uh, well, if we had to ask forgiveness when we're saved, I mean, why do we ask forgiveness as, as Christians? You know, it's covered. Christ is paid for it at the cross. Here's the answer. I have a covenant relationship with my wife. When I sin against her, that covenant is not broken. The relationship is not ripped apart. 
but it puts quite a barrier between us. The joy of that relationship, the fellowship of that relationship is greatly hindered by my sin. I I repent of my sin. I ask forgiveness for my sin to restore the fullness and wholeness of that relationship. And that is the same as a believer with God. You cannot lose your salvation. It's not undone and ripped away from you. But your joy in that relationship, your fellowship with God can be greatly hindered by undealt with sin. You need God's forgiveness. We need the forgiveness of others too. It's necessary for our relationship with others. It's necessary in our church for unity. It's necessary in our homes for true family relationships. And in our workplaces for productivity. In fact, I would go so far as to say this. You cannot live a good Christian life cannot have healthy relationships, and cannot prosper in this or any other Christian community without forgiveness. It is impossible. Forgiveness is the glue of relationships. It restores what has been broken. Think of this. A little child is playing in the house. Mom's vase is on the table up there. He's being careless. The vase, the table has hit the vase, totters, crashes, breaks. And this little child looks at this and tries to pick the pieces up and, and put them back together. Maybe he's able to. Maybe his puzzling skills are good enough that he, he can get it back on the table. All the pieces set and it's sitting there. But now he has got to be so careful. No one can touch this. This thing is super fragile. It could break any second. Stay away. Be careful. Guard it. It's it's fragile. It's delicate. That is what relationships without forgiveness are like. Ready to be destroyed. Bumped at any moment and come crashing back down. Hopeless. Fearful. Relationships, though, are held together by the glue of forgiveness. Forgiveness restores and restores usefulness. The the, the vase is able to be used once again. And actually, it might even be stronger than it was before. This forgiveness glue holds it together, allows for this relationship to grow and flourish. Instead of this fragile, oh, I don't want to touch it, stay away. It's You can grow. Dig deeply into it and enjoy the fellowship that comes from it. Forgiveness is essential for the Christian life. It is necessary. Which leads us to our second question. Okay, so if this is so important, how do I do it? How should I forgive? What does it look like to do this? And for that, let's turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul, in this passage, is writing to the church, encouraging them. He's talked about what God has already done in their past, having chosen them to bring them to himself, having bled for them to sanctify them from their sin, and having given them the Holy Spirit to enable them to live the Christian life. He says, what does it look like to be this new creature, this one who has been saved and empowered by God? What do they do? How do they live? Verse 17, he talks about how they don't live. 
So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind. And he goes on to explain, what does this look like? What are the sinful actions that these guys are doing that you should not look like you're doing anymore? Verse 20. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. He says, you are a new creature, you creature, creation. You should live and look different And then he explains how that works. Verses 22 through 24. That in reference to your former former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. What he's saying here is you... We're this person, you no longer are, by God's grace, you don't have to be, and now you spend a daily battle, a daily fight, daily working at laying aside what you used to be, who you were, what you did, have your mind transformed with his truth, and as that happens, you put on new actions. You begin looking more and more like Jesus. As these things are put aside, your mind is transformed, and new actions come in and result and are seen in your life. And the rest of the chapter, verses 25 through 32, are practical pictures of how this putting off and putting on looks. He he gives examples about, about lying. He says, do not lie anymore, but it's not just enough, don't lie. He says, put on truth. Stop lying, put on truth. He he talks uh, about anger and how that is to be laid aside and instead to pursue forgiveness. We're going to talk more about that in a little bit. He talks about worthless speech. Put that aside and instead don't just stop talking. Have uplifting, gracious speech that gives life to those who hear. And then verses 30 and 31, he talks about our response when someone harms us. What does it look like to put off sin and put on righteousness, put on Christ in our responses when someone harms us? Verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Verse 31 Tells us what we're supposed to be putting off. Let me give you some very practical examples. What forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not the silent treatment. It is not this person has harmed me, so I just refuse to recognize their existence. I don't talk to them. I just ignore them. I just do my own thing and leave them alone. Forgiveness is not waiting till time passes. Well, you know, eventually I'll be okay with this and we'll get on, but it's just going to take a while. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not blowing up till you calm down where you are angry and you just get all your anger out and you, you've expensed yourself and now it's okay. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is not I'm sorry. Sorry is when you've made a mistake. Sorry is you're at your neighbor's house and you trip and fall through their screen door and, and make a mess of it. That's sorry. Or sorry is, is 
I'm sorry I'm caught. Not I'm sorry for what I did. I'm sorry that I got caught doing it. Forgiveness is not telling others about it. Well, man, guys, we need to pray for him. I mean, you should have heard what he did to me. I mean, he just, just really ungodly. We need to pray for him. That's not forgiveness. Gossiping to others. Forgiveness is not bringing it up in your next fight. When you're arguing, and then all of a sudden they... And you, you said that last time. You did that again, remember? You keep doing this. That's not forgiveness. So that's not forgiveness. What is forgiveness? And verse 32 has that answer for us. I want to focus on the end of it especially. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgiveness is what God did for you. Here's a definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is bearing the attack of someone on you rather than giving them what they deserve. Bearing the full weight of their attack on you rather than paying them back. Not doing what you want to do, maybe even have the right to do, but you choose not to do. Bearing the attack of someone on you rather than giving them what they deserve. The question then is, what what does this bearing mean? What does it mean to bear this attack? And the statement, forgive and forget, comes up. And I would suggest that's not a terribly biblical statement. Here's why. Because it says, you're to forgive each other just as God in Christ forgave you. God doesn't forget. An all-knowing God does not forget. What our God does is cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. He chooses never to go back to it. Never to bring it up again. It is dealt with. It is finished. It is done. What does that mean for us and forgiveness? It means that when we say we are bearing the sin of another, when we are forgiving, we are making a threefold promise. There's a promise that I will not bring it back up to them. I won't bring it up to others. And, and this is the hardest one, at least for me. I won't bring it back up to myself. I won't bring it up to them. I won't bring it up to others. I won't bring it up to me. It, it means that when we're fighting, I can't go back and say, yeah, but remember the last time? We've done this time and time again. And you keep... I can't do that. It's forgiven. I don't bring it back up. I don't remind them this sin that's been forgiven. It means I don't go to others and say, yeah, you know, we, we talked about it, but they, it, it really hurt. I mean, they were really nasty to me. And they, it, it, you're not telling others about it. It's dealt with. It's done. And this last one means that you're not sitting there in bed at night pondering how you could have done a really good response back or, or what you could have done or, or how, how you could have changed the, 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 the environment, the way it was set up so it didn't happen, or all these sorts of things, it means that you let it rest, that you trust God. And, and honestly, we're, we're going to talk about this more. It's not only hard, but it's impossible. We'll come back to that. But this threefold promise is, is a bearing the attack of someone on you rather than giving them what they deserve. 
Saying that, though, I, I do want to just look at the other side of the coin really quickly. What if you are not the one that needs to forgive? You're the one who needs forgiven. You're the wronger in the situation. What does that look like? I would suggest you need to go to the one that you've wronged. Paul is so adamant about that that he is willing to send Onesimus back, lose these opportunities, his ministry, his loving heart, his, his own ease and comfort of having Onesimus there. He is willing to lose all that to send him back to meet with Philemon and talk with him and say, will you forgive me? And for Philemon to give him that forgiveness. We are called to come to God. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must go, we must confess. And I would challenge you, if there are things in your heart, things you are holding on to, God already knows them. And God stands ready to forgive. There, there is nothing that he cannot and will not forgive. But you must come. Not only are we called to go to God, we are called to go to others. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. God cares more about forgiveness and reconciliation than he does even sacrificial worship. He says, go. Go to that one who you offended. Ask their forgiveness. And if you are here this morning and the Holy Spirit is bringing someone to mind, I would encourage you, heed that. Make a phone call this afternoon. Write a letter. Send an email. Go to that person. Ask for forgiveness. It is necessary for that relationship to be restored. Confess what you did to them. And ask them for their forgiveness. So you're like, okay, forgiveness is super important. I understand that. I even understand how to do it. I need to bear this this sin on me. But why? Which leads us to our third question. Why should I forgive? What is my motivation for doing this? That takes us to our third passage. Go to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus has been teaching here. He's just talked about actually what we just talked about. About need to go to your brother if they're in sin and confront them and, and deal with that relationship and restore it. And in response to that, Peter goes and he asks this question. Verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Peter comes. He is so gracious. Seven times? I mean, I am just... I'm willing to do it, Lord. I've got seven times. And Jesus responds. In a twofold response. First he says, 
Jesus said to him, verse 22, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Peter's like, how do, how do I do that? I, I don't understand. And then Jesus goes on to tell a parable, helping to show Peter that his whole question is wrong. He's asking the wrong question. Verse 23. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay his Lord, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of the slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell on the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me. I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him into prison until he could pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him to his Lord, said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he could repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from the heart. The servant comes to the king because he owes 10,000 denarii. Or not 10,000 denarii, 10,000 talents. One talent was worth 15 years worth of work. 15 years of your life. He owes 10,000. 15 times 10,000. I'll let you do the math. He owes lifetimes of work. There is no way he could ever repay this debt. It is astronomical. Huge. He could never repay it. And yet the king forgives. It's removed, it's wiped away, it's not lessened, it's not diminished, it's not slowly sort of fading in a payment plan. It's dealt with, it's done, it's gone. And then in response, the servant goes out and finds his fellow servant and is choking him. Give me my money. Says he wants a hundred denarii. One denarii is a, is a day's wage. This guy owes him a hundred days worth of work under a third of a year. Give me what is owed me. And the king hears of it and he punishes the servant. He punishes him for not showing mercy and the forgiveness that he was shown. He does not show it to the others. And here's the thing, this parable, it's not about the amounts owed. It's about the heart. 
It's not about the amounts owed. It's about the heart. Peter's question is all wrong. Jesus tells him this parable to say, Peter, you've got it wrong. It's not about how much do I have to forgive. It's about why wouldn't I forgive? How could I not forgive? When I have been shown all this graciousness toward me, how could I not but forgive? As many times as necessary. When we have the right understanding of the gospel and the grace shown to us, we will naturally, willingly forgive others. We who are under God's wrath, destined for destruction, helpless, hopeless, God's created image bearers for his glory alone, becoming his enemies, robbing him of the glory that is due him. We deserve nothing but hell. The wages of sin is death. That is what we've earned. But Ephesians 2, 4 through 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You, damned to the fires of hell, snatched away only by the graciousness of his hand, saved, made his child, raised up with him to receive all the blessings of his child as his heir, equal, co-heir with Christ. You, how could you not but honor him? How could we not but give forgiveness with how much has been shown to us? The gospel should motivate us to forgive. It is the why. How important is forgiveness? It is necessary for the Christian life. How should I forgive? Bearing. Bearing the attacks upon you. Why should I forgive? Because of the gospel and the great love your God has shown you. But maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, I, I, I can't forgive this, this person. There's this one person, this person who has hurt me so badly. Maybe there are things that have been done to you that you have walked with for most of your life. Things you've been keeping for years. Maybe there are things that you hope no one ever finds out about. People who should have been your biggest allies turned out your greatest enemies. Those who were placed in a position to protect you abused their power to hurt you. What do you do with what we've discussed? First, you recognize it's not easy. Forgiveness is not easy. And actually, forgiveness is impossible. It is impossible for you of yourself to forgive. These deep hurts and these deep pains. Second, go to God. Go to God in prayer, asking for his supernatural enabling help. Only God can help you forgive in this way. I would encourage you, a verse I've read recently and it's been encouraging to my own heart. It's Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. 
phrase this in Ephesians 3, verse 16. He says about them that he, Christ, would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man. Paul's prayer is that they would have the strength to do what they cannot do of themselves. God is the one who enables us to fulfill the things he demands of us that we cannot in ourselves ever do. Go to him. Third, meditate on the gospel. Asking God to soften your heart. Ponder the truths of scripture. Go to Ephesians 2. Beautiful passage. That is, that is our story as believers. What you were, what God has done, and who he has made you to believe, to, to be. All that we believe found there in that passage. The hope of the gospel. Meditate on that. And last, after taking your deepest hurts and pains to God, the next step for true healing is forgiveness. There, Corey Ten Boom stood on that platform. The ex-guard's hand extended still to her. She finishes the story stating this. Forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I, I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust out my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started my shoulder and raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands former guard, and a former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But, but even then, I realized it was not my love. I had tried. I did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness is necessary. For all your relationships with others, for your relationship with God, for your own soul. Forgiveness is absolutely necessary. It is vital to the Christian life. Forgiveness is done by bearing the sins of others against you. Choosing not to bring them back up. Promising to bear them. And third, forgiveness has to be motivated but an understanding of the gospel that outweighs even the deepest of pains and greatest of hurts done to you by others. Let's pray. Father, we are those who have sung about our wretched and poor. We were your enemies. And yet you chose to come save us. We who had nothing to give, nothing to offer, nothing we could ever do that would in any way benefit you at all. 
And yet you save us. You give your Son for us. You bear the weight of our sin against you. Lord, help us to respond in such a way that we would worship, that we would be amazed. Let that challenge our hearts and break them. Let us be void of any thought of being owed anything. For we have been saved out of darkness into wondrous light. And Lord, that you would be exalted that, that as we live broken people being hurt by others, that Lord, we would extend the grace that you have shown us to them. That you would be made much of in our lives and in this world. We thank you for Jesus our Savior, our forgiver. And we ask all this because of him.